thanks everyone for coming in the middle of the well the very end of the summer before school starts up again maybe this is a good time for that as our lives get pretty hectic again um, I'm not sure how many of you went to some of Rob's seminars over the last month or if you've listened to them if you haven't I really encourage you to the goal for us was that this seminar that I'm doing would follow his and that um, I'm going to talk more about some of the theory and research behind the importance of routines and rituals and that connects of course with the structure of this family seminar that he's been doing. So um, the title is Teach Them Diligently. I don't know how many of you know Wendell Berry, um, but of course this harkens to um, this harkens to scripture, and I'd just like you all to read through it, um, and then take a second to meditate on it, and then we have a second meditation as well. So just read through it, and then close your eyes. When you've read through it, close your eyes, and I just want you to meditate on the poem for a few, maybe half a minute. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests and his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Lord God, we just pray that you would bless our time together, that you would bless our conversations, and most especially, Lord, that we would rest today in you, <coughs> that we would hear from you, Lord, that you would help us to be still, that you would help us to listen, that, we would that you would help us to know you and then be able to help our families and especially our children know you also, Jesus. In your name, amen. So for those of you who thought that the poetry meditation was a little out of what you usually do, here's another one. I'm going to ask you to meditate or really just to think back on a play experience from any time in your childhood. So I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes and you're just going to take a couple minutes to search your memory and then focus in on one salient specific memory when you were at play. Any age, any context. All right? So close your eyes. Think back in your memory. Take a little time and then identify one specific memory, any age, any context, when you were at play. Now as you find that memory, think about where are you and what are you doing? What are you playing with? Who are you playing with? Who else is around you and what are they doing? What do you see? Here, 
feel. And depending on your age, perhaps smell or even taste. How do you feel? Now take a moment <coughs> to as best as you can transport yourself back to that time and space and place and enjoy playing. When you're ready, open your eyes. And I'd like you to turn to a brother or sister nearby and share any part of your memory you'd like to. This is your memory. You don't have to share everything. You don't have to share anything. But share as much as you would like to with your brother or sister next to you, maybe one or two people. We're just going to share for a couple minutes, and then I'm going to ask if anyone would like to share with the group. Yes, and share your names as well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just 
All right, well, I think my job here is done because you can just keep talking about your play memories for a while. I, I, by the way, I encourage you to do this more often. There's a very good reason we do this. We don't often connect with our own memories of play, even when we play with our own children. And thinking back into what you enjoyed doing and what you connected with can help you with ideas, but also help you realize your biases when you're setting up things for your kids that maybe are not their favorite, but they really were yours, right? Um, would anyone like to share um, something that they talked about? Any observations? No electronics. <laughs> no electronics? <laughs> <laughs> what sort of materials were, do you guys remember playing with? What sort of things were you playing with in your memories? You can just shout them out. Snow. Sand, snow, what else? Snow. Soccer ball. Soccer ball. Swing set. Swing set. Other things? Eating ice cream. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> Eating ice cream. <laughs> Other kids. Other kids? <laughs> Anyone, um, where were adults? Anyone have memories that they were specifically playing with adults? No, it's pretty uncommon as your most salient memories. And, and, and do you remember where the adults were when I asked you who else was around? Do you remember where, do, were you aware of where the adults were, what they were doing? Maybe a little bit, but it's not, it's not usually a central part of your play, right? Where were you guys? Where were you playing? Any particular places you remember? Or stood out as you talked with your group? Some similarities, differences? I was in front of my parents' store. No? <laughs> Makes sense? Yep. Yeah. Uh, school playground. School playground. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Friends. Friends house. Indoors, outdoors? But. But. <laughs> Anyone else? Cousin's house. Indoors, outdoors? Anyone want to share a specific memory they had with the crew? Yeah, I was sharing with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's really interesting. So that's a place in the back of the world. I have two brothers, so it's mm -hmm. however you can get the energy out. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember how you felt when you were playing with them? Uh, well, you want to stay there for a long time, as long as you can, until your mm -hmm. mom, they're usually, you ask where they were, they're usually, my mom was in the house, mm -hmm. and then, I think we had electronic games, like handheld games, mm -hmm. then you prefer to play with other kids where you actually have things that you can do out of that mm -hmm. game, so you have a backdoor, uh, backdoor water, mm -hmm. not a well, but like a faucet I remember, so you can just fill up into bottles of water, and then you get a restaurant, or a dinner, mm -hmm. and mom and dad. You know, the things that kids do now, except simpler, yeah. right? Much to play. You said, what did you play with? Lots of dirt, mm -hmm. plants, flowers, whatever is it you're disposing. And that's so that I think mirrors a lot of the other materials people are talking about. By the way, the term in the field of playwork is loose parts, is what you're talking about. But it's basically materials that can easily be moved and transformed and don't have a particular prescribed purpose, right? Because they really allow for creative and imaginative play. The interesting thing is when we set up these community adventure play experiences, which I'll tell you a bit more about all over Westchester and then also we've been doing them in urban and rural Africa and Tanzania, Malawi, Zimbabwe. We see kids doing the same things that you guys are talking about and the same things that when we ask their parents and these are parents in the US and New York, Westchester area and Bronx and so on and also um, in sub-Saharan Africa, when we ask them about their memories of play the things that they describe really mirror what they then see their children doing in these experiences. So there's definitely something going on there um, in terms of their memories and in terms of what kids tend to gravitate to when they're given that opportunity. Um, and that's what I'm going to talk about more today. Um, I'm going to talk about the importance of play as a key proximal process, a key way of exploration, um, and especially child-directed play. And then I'm also going to talk about um, some other aspects of setting up effective routines and rituals. And here come some great loose parts. There you go, <laughs> as a demonstration. <laughs> Simon, it's Loco. <laughs> yeah, yeah but you didn't know you were demonstrating to the whole group. So, as you probably realized as you were thinking about your play memories, play is really transformative and it's essential for children's well-being, cognitive development, learning, processing and so on. So I wanted to tell you a little story about um, my first realization of the transformative nature of play. And actually, this is what started me working in child development in the first place. When I was 14, 15, um, I, as many of you know, I grew up in Malawi. And at that time, we were in the midst of the AIDS crisis. I mean, and at that point, there were no ARVs, there were no solution. In fact, most people didn't even really know what was going on, and we actually didn't know a lot about how it was spread, right? And so, um, 
the, basically the extended family networks were no longer able to care for children because they, so many people were dying of AIDS. Um, we also have very poor infrastructure, poor nutrition, which as we know now is really, good nutrition is really important for maintaining the immune system and other things if you have HIV. So they started to be these orphanage type environments, infant homes, that try to mimic actually home environments, but especially for young infants, and they call them crisis nurseries, because they just, they, they might have had some extended family, but they couldn't afford to feed them. They'd lost their mother, so no more breast milk, and they couldn't afford formula. They had no access to clean water, and these kids were starving. So they brought them in, but as you can guess, um, the normal transference rate is at least 20%, but a lot of these kids were coming in very malnourished um, and in these infant homes about half of the kids died in their first two years it was really a hard time I still work with these institutions and now they very rarely lose children they now have them on ARVs they become affordable through legislation in South Africa and so on it's a very different place but at that time I volunteered at one of these infant homes and we would go in every week um, as part of my school and our role was really to support the caregivers who um, were doing wonderful work, but there are five of them to um, one, right? Uh, one of them to five kids, not the other way around. And so we just wanted to provide extra support for the kids to have some engagement with other adults and to play. And our goal was to see the same child over and over and build a healthy relation, attachment relationship with them. So I was given a four-month-old and... Um, I wasn't so happy about that. I'd worked with older kids and I loved working with children. I didn't know what to do with a four-month-old. I didn't know if I even had even ever held a four-month-old, probably, but you know, I really had no idea. So I learned and we learned together. And this four-month-old was called Chisomo, which means love, actually, in Chichawa. And she had ne come in very malnourished and she had never smiled. No one had ever seen her smile. She just had very, like, no, no emotion on her face, right? And she couldn't sit four months, but she couldn't sit up. She had no, she had no support, no motor system. And so we just spent some time getting to know each other. Um, I came week over week. And one day I s started figuring out, which all of you know, that kids love to go back and forth, upside down. So I was playing with her like this and tipping her back and pulling her up. And as I pulled her up, she smiled at me for the first time and it was like her whole, you know, her whole life st started changing as a result of healthy nutrition and then having those play experiences. And as you can imagine, that was quite transformative for me. And I became very interested in attachment um, and in healthy attachments. And of course, you know the orphanage literature and we get concerned that kids who are growing up in institutions, at the time I was in um, college, this was the time when a lot was coming out about Romanian and other East European orphanages where kids were left in cots that had no human interaction. And I said, you know, these institutions that I work with seem like happy places for children. They are trying to mirror their home environments pretty common where I grew up for there to be multiple caregivers for children who are really like a mother and so I, I, I felt like I wanted to explore this and I went back and did my um, I did my undergraduate thesis 
trying to understand attachment in these institutions. Um, and as many of you know, a healthy parent-child attachment is essential for early development. And also, Bowlby argues, he's a, it's a major theorist in the field, that it's the foundation for all other relationships because we actually set up what he calls an internal working model or expectations of how other people relate to us. Um, and there's good evidence that healthy parent-child relationships predict later socio-emotional development and mental health, but also cognitive and language development, right? And so part of what I'm going to talk to you about today is not just child-directed play where they get to engage in interactions with objects, but also <coughs> parent-child interactions and attachments and how we set those up with a healthy routine that is also foundational for early development. Right. So I went into these institutions and I tried to, you don't have to worry too much about the data, this just in case you want a picture, I'll tell you what it says. Basically, I wanted to see whether they had the same patterns of attachment as we saw in normative home environments. And what I found was that there was a different distribution, but they had just as secure attachments. So if you want to look at the data, for those of you who are interested, type B are different types of secure attachments. So what I found was they had different types of type B. They have to do with certain behaviors that children show. But that the vast majority of the children, this is the experimental percentage, had a secure relationship with the primary caregivers who were set up in these institutions. And so for me, this suggested that it's not just about a biological caregiver, it's the sort of environment that we're setting up for children, where they had healthy routines and rituals, they had the same caregiver taking care of children over time. Um, and this suggested that this was really important, yeah, that, that, that in these settings, they were doing the right things for children in terms of the attachment. Um, nevertheless, this sort of experimental setup draws on something that's called a strange situation. I didn't do that in my work, but the typical setup in the attachment literature is to actually separate a child um, from their, their you, you set the child up in a room, the young child, 12 months old. We could use Simon as example. So you put Simon in a room with Ruth and a stranger, okay? that Ruth talks to the stranger a little bit, and then Ruth just leaves, doesn't tell Simon. And the goal is to stress the kid out. Now you can imagine it does. The, what they're trying to do, I'm not a big fan of this procedure, but it does work to show you secure attachment behavior. When Ruth comes back, the goal for if he has a secure attachment would be that he runs to her immediately, and you've seen this, right? You've all seen this with your kids. Runs to her immediately and is immediately soothed, not immediately, but quickly soothed by the caregiver, that he'll calm down, and that then the caregiver is able to re-engage and play, right? However, this doesn't mimic what we normally do with our children, does it? So this might say something about what you know, happens in strange situations, but not necessarily what happens in everyday life. Um, and that, I think, is what a lot of people think about developmental research. They'll read something on the news, they'll say, well, that's all very well, but they set their kids in a room and with white walls, whatever. It's easy to say that this works and that doesn't work, but it's not like my home environment, right? So my goal in a lot of my work is to connect the research and also the theory with everyday environments that people live in. So Brown from Brenner, um, who was actually at Cornell, um, 
said in the 1970s actually argued that much of developmental psychology is the science of the strange behavior of children in strange situations with strange adults for the briefest possible periods of time, right? Um, he argued that contrary to that, we should be studying children in the actual environments in which we live. And he argued that when we do this, we will get a sense of the key factors that are driving children's development and functioning. And he argued for what you call, the term doesn't matter so much, but it's easier to keep it in mind, proximal processes. And these are enduring forms of interaction in the immediate environment that he argued become increasingly more complex over time. So these day-to-day -day interactions that you have with your children are what's really driving their development, right? Um, for, for young kids, um, and actually for a lot of children, these are objects and toys that they engage in, and also people that they interact with. So it's both objects and spaces, and also people. Okay, so if we think about play a little bit more, and then I'm gonna connect this back, we know that children learn through exploring and acting on their world. I'm just throwing out all the theorists in case this is interesting to you, right? So Piaget, major developmental theorist, this is his key argument. Vygotsky, who disagreed with Piaget on pretty much everything, did not disagree with this. He argued that play function as actual scaffolding for children to become more competent and confident. So not just cognitive, but also um, socio-emotional. And Erickson, so we've just thrown out the three major developmental theorists, right, argued that play aids self-regulation, self-esteem, and self-direction. But importantly, Bronfenbrenner argued that not all children necessarily have the space and place and time to play in the ways that are healthy, right? So he argued that play does need a conducive physical and social environment in order for children to be able to um, engage in effective creative play. So he argued um, that we need to provide these proximal processes that are enduring, these ongoing enduring forms of interaction in the immediate environment, okay? Now, I would argue, this is sort of the classic setup of proximal processes, that routines, both with people and objects, on a day-to-day -day basis, are really what's driving children's development, learning, and functioning. Now, these things are things that we just naturally do, and a lot of these things we don't think of as key drivers, but the way that we interact during meal times, bedtimes, nursing, changing, book reading, bedtime stories, all of those things are really repeated interactions that then drive children's learning. And some of the other things that Rob has talked about over the past few weeks includes a family worship time, family meal times, and so on. Um, I would also argue that play is a key proximal process for young children and actually even for adults because we all play, we just can play in different ways. What I mean by play is the act of exploration of and engagement with the world around us, right? Um, and some examples that have come up in our discussions and other things I think about, things like family playtimes, game nights, hiking, outdoor adventures, other activities, regular vacations, things that you do on a regular basis that um, children engage in and are able to freely explore and engage in the world.
Okay. And I would argue that the natural environment is a particularly important piece of this as well. And you saw this all in your play memories, right? Yeah. Are we on slide nine now? Oh, I am sorry. Thank you, Young. So this is slide nine in case anyone wants to hear the audio afterwards. All right. So I'm not going to spend the rest of my time today telling you about um, what I've been working on over the summer, but I will take maybe two minutes because I think this might maybe helps. So we don't have to worry about all of the specific language that Bronfen Brenner uses, but he argues for a model which he calls person, process, context, time. And he argues that the person is interacting with various people and objects, both in their immediate environment and in external environments over time. And that the things that matter and stick with us are the things that happen regularly over time, right? And in order for learning to happen, they have to become more complex, right? Now, also important, and this is what I wanted to highlight here, um, is that the context that children engage in is not just their immediate environment, right? And it's not just home. Their immediate environment includes family, but also school, health services, um, peers, interactions with religious um, services and others where they have regular interactions. So your time that your kids have, for example, in Sunday school every week, that's part of their key immediate environment. But the sort of things we do in those environments and the sorts of things we do in our home environments don't come from nowhere, right? We and the child are influenced by broader environments that then influence how we interact and how much time we have to interact with our kids and the sorts of things we can do. For example, if parents have very long, stressful work, work hours, right, they're going to have fewer hours with their kids. Now, that may or may not be a good thing. We can talk about the different ways to address those issues, but the broader cultural context in which we live really matters. Also, other expectations, goals, and values of our culture influence the sort of things we do with our children, right? So this is, it's a little hard to see here, but it, it's, you could hopefully see the, um, the key part in the middle. This is my um, re-envisioning of Bronfen Brenner's model to really focus on the, how we transmit just, you know, this, this for me, this model for me that is, is very um, Western. It's very person-centered, right? It's all about here's the person in the middle and all these things are happening and they happening to it. For me, from an African point of view, um, and I work with on some other theorists, that's not really how we live our lives, right? We live in a larger network of communities. So this is just one example. The child's on the right and a caregiver, for example, could be a teacher, whatever's on the left. And the sorts of things that children value are influenced by what their parents value, but likewise, the, child, the things that children value then influence what their parents value. Hmm. The same thing is true for the ki what kids like to, um, for beliefs, values, and practices in family environments, right? So in the center, you have the family, I know it's a little hard to read, but you have family routines and rituals, um, and those are influenced by family goals and family values, but the sorts of routines and rituals you engage in also influence your goals, right? So the more you do something, the more you have like a family, for example, a family um, family um, meditation every day, the more your values will change towards valuing that, right? So the, these things go are reciprocal. 
then those routines and rituals, and you know, some of this work comes from Barbara Feast, who talks about the importance of family mealtimes, right? And how this really um, drives family functioning. Those routines and rituals that you engage in are influenced by your child's current status and also their personality traits, biology, and so on. So of course, a very nice example is you're not going to sit down and have an hour-long family meditation and prayer with a six-month-old, right? Because they're going to have to eat within that hour and they might need a diaper change and other things like that. And so the sorts of ways in which we do things have to really change and do change based on the specific needs, interests, and goals of our children at different stages in their lives. And the same is true of everyone else, right? So, hmm. So then, what does this all mean if we're going to think about, this is the key scripture that um, Rob, ha Rob has been focused on in these family seminars, and this is slide 13, Deuteronomy 6, 49. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, I'm not going to talk about you know, all of the scriptural details of this. Um, I think especially last week, um, that Rob talked about quite a lot of these pieces. But I do want to highlight this talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This has for me a really strong echo of the importance of routines and rituals that are influenced by what we value, right? So they, the, the argument here is that if you, that you love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your might, and that that then leads you to be focused on thinking about those words throughout the day, when you wake up, when you rise, as you go about your everyday business, right? You teach them to your children, talk of them when you're in your house, regular meal times, prayer times, and so on. When you walk by the way, as you're traveling, as you see things, when you go out, and as you rise and as you lie down, right? And then there are other pieces about how you talk about it. Um, so what does this mean for us? I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of what I think about in terms of the broader research and theory, what I think is really important. And then I'm going to talk about, and I would like us together to talk about some key um, ways in which we can think about this and how it would work in our own lives, right? So here it is, proximal processes, routines and rituals, and what it means to teach diligently. For me, if we're going to affect any sort of change in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and so on, what we really need to do is focus on the key factors that both are challenges for us and also where we have opportunities for action, right? So we may say that something is a huge challenge, but we have no way to act or we don't have the resources to change that. 
that's okay, right? There are many ways in which we can work and operate and many ways in which we can affect change. So if we can think about the things both that are challenges and also that, um, have, uh, that, that we can change, that gets us somewhere, right? So for me, one of the big challenges in, that I've seen, and there's some theory on this, of course, and other work, um, for children and families around the globe, often for different reasons, and this spans different socioeconomic statuses, um, is interruptions of proximal processes, right? If we say that these proximal processes, these ongoing, enduring interactions that happen regularly over time are the core factors that drive healthy development and functioning, if we are interrupting those proximal processes so that they don't happen, that's when we run into challenges. And for me, one of the biggest challenges are factors that contribute towards chaos. That interrupts our regular routines. And you all know this, right? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty obvious. Um, some of the things that, that we don't always think about, though, are noise, crowding, and for, for a lot of folks, residential mobility, right? And this is why being a refugee, quite apart from all the other things of leaving your home, is so challenging, is it's very hard to set up a regular routine and family structure and to predict anything in the future for yourself or your children, right? Other things that you may not think about are home and school design. As it turns out, the way in which we set up our physical spaces has a huge impact on how we function in them and especially on um, being able to control chaos, right? Um, and allow some chaos. It's not that chaos is inherently negative. It's when chaos interrupts proximal processes that it is. Um, folks who have school and neighborhood residential instability for various other reasons, income status and so on, also that this can be a key issue. For other folks, and I think I would argue that this is a growing challenge today, there are distractions and interruptions of our routines and rituals in our everyday lives. Right. Now, Bronfen Brenner's last paper, actually, with my graduate advisor, Gary Evans, was arguing that they see a growing chaos, and this was written, by the way, in 2000, a growing chaos in the everyday lives of especially American families. Right? And other folks are arguing that this is true. Since then, um, Gary has published a text on chaos around the world, and there are other, there are other pieces on this. But I would argue that this is the challenge of technology, right? I'm not anti-technology, you can see, I'm using it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I read all my papers online. I actually have my, allow my students to bring in laptops to read their work. I like to say paper, so that's what I do. So some of my colleagues are not impressed with that, you know. So, you know, I, it's n the real challenge, especially with mobile phones, is that they disrupt and distract and interrupt our regular routines and rituals, okay? And especially, they interrupt key routines and rituals that in healthy family environments really matter. These are family meal, meal times, okay? Family prayer times, and the way in which we get up in the morning and go to bed at night, right? And of course, there's a lot of research, and we all know this, but we still do it. So a lot of research that, you, that, sh that suggests very strongly we should not have screens in our bedroom. One, because when you work in the same places you sleep, 
that actually makes it hard for you to settle yourself down and think of it as a sleep space. But also actually the screen light actually also has an impact on our cognitive functioning and arousal, right? Um, John Pipe in a great article that Christine sent me it takes it a, a step further and I actually linked to this article at the end on the last slide so you can go read it, argues that, um, that, you know, that we actually use our phones before we go to bed and especially when we wake up as, as kids use candy just to get a little fix, right? What did someone say about me? What happened in the world? As, but, you know, something to excite us but also something to distract us from thinking about our lives and our challenges and so on um, and there's a lot of literature out there that th these are that these are challenges um, so the challenge especially for chaos there are many factors in children's environments and I've done some work in trying to measure different aspects of environments that are impacting children um, the real challenge with chaos is that it's both a physical contributor and a social contributor and it's because the way that chaos impacts children directly, right? If they're in noisy, crowded, and so on environments, or have lack of routines, but it also impacts their caregivers. And so if their caregivers are experiencing chaos, that changes their stress cycle, the phys their physiology, and so on. And so it changes the way they interact with their children, where they are less likely. It's the biggest um, the thing that happens is less responsive parenting. They're more likely to disengage because they can't manage everything. Um, but also sometimes that you can be more harsh with your kids, right? Um, so taking it a little bit further, I think for me, one of the ways in which chaos really operates um, is within the sort of spaces that we live. And I say this because sometimes they're things that are easy to change, right? So, especially in the New York metropolitan area, our homes tend to be crowded. One of the reasons for that is we have too much stuff. Um, and I am completely guilty of that. In fact, every time I come back from the study abroad program I've been running, I feel overwhelmed by my home because when I'm traveling, I have two suitcases and two kids. And that's all we have, right? That's all we have in every space. So pleasant, I have to say, very nice. Um, and if you don't have it, you just don't have it, right? Um, so that's one of the things. But the other thing is that the built environment is not what we have we, uh, what our bodies have, I would argue, evolved, but we could think about the way we're created in general, right? We, we, we're not made for the built environment, and there's actually a lot of work on this as well. Built environments are inherently unhealthy for us. From the structures that make up your roof, not to scare you guys, but I'm sure there are about 20 things in your home that are not healthy for you. It's also nice to have a roof over your head when it rains though, right? But built environment is not what we evolved to be in. And so being outside of built environments and in natural environments where we are able to engage in um, extended um, sort of interactions with natural spaces actually helps to reset us. It helps to reset our physiology and it helps to reset our emotional interaction. So both our conscious experience and um, both our conscious experience and our unconscious experience, right? Bear with me as this comes back up. I was talking too long for the slide. 
And actually, there's some interesting work that suggests that um, that suggests that the um, that natural spaces and that and also things that that are made like natural spaces, like water fountains, for example, so it can be built structures, actually hold an inherent fascination um, for us. And you will see this with kids, right? They they see them on a water fountain. They'll just actually our kids were just doing that yesterday. Just sit and stare at the water fountain for a while. And so um, there's actually good evidence that just spending time in natural green spaces for children and adults helps to um, mitigate some of the effects of chaos, even if we don't change the chaos at all. Just having that as part of our everyday experience really matters. Um, and of course, this is an equity issue because some folks have access to green spaces and many do not. Um, also for me, though, if we think about mechanisms of action, um, one of the ways in which we can read that that could have one of the things ways in which chaos works in a negative way, but also a, an opportunity for action, is that the key, key factors that influence mastery, self-efficacy, and feeling confident and able to act are the things both that chaos takes away from us and the things that we are able to give back to children through play. Okay, so. There's some things in our lives that will be uncontrollable, right? Some levels of noise and crowding. Um, there's some things that we could make more predictable if we work at it, and some folks can't. It depends on the structure of your home and neighborhood and so on. Um, but the factors that really have an impact on mastery self-efficacy are, are over-regimentation, which is very typical of our schools today, right? Over and complete inflexibility, or on the other hand, highly unpredictable and variable conditions, right? So both of those are not particularly great for self-efficacy. Um, and then, um, I don't know why this keeps getting lost. Never doesn't come back, I'll just go on without this slide. Come on. Well, while it's coming up, so I would argue it's it's a little easier to see it all together. That you know, the that one of the things that we can do is try to set up some key routines and rituals that help to allow some predictability but routines and rituals that are also somewhat flexible so that we bear in mind that too much rigidity can also cause um, a lack of, uh, of control of the environment. And for children, part of this is knowing both what children's passions are and, what, and also their developmental capabilities that we don't set up routines and rituals that are too hard for them to participate or not interesting for them. That we figure out ways in which we set up routines and rituals that work for our whole family. Um, one, because then they'll, they'll, the kids will engage with them, but two, because they'll also work for us, right? There's no point in trying to do an hour-long prayer time every night with a two-year-old who needs to go to bed, right? That's, it, there's no point. It's miserable for everyone. Right? It makes us feel worse because we can't succeed in it, right? Um, so 
Um, the other aspect of this is that, um, as I said, nature functions as a restorative process. And so if we can set up some routines and rituals that help us engage in God's natural world and in the natural environment and natural spaces, including meditations on creation, that helps us restore our, both our physiology and our well-being. And also, it's much easier to get your kids to engage in all sorts of routines and rituals outside, right, when they're out in a natural environment. So what so the, the two major ways that I would argue that we could think about acting are in terms of preventing interruptions of play and interruptions of day-to-day -day healthy family routines and rituals but also on the other hand in allowing space and place for for um, children to play in green spaces, right? So this is what I've been working on. Of course, permanent structures are wonderful, but in a lot of places, that's not possible. And that's why I've been working on these community adventure play experiences. The goal for these is to be able to set up temporary adventure play experiences for children with what we talked about as loose parts, materials that don't have a particular function so that children can engage with them um, and engage in really creative active play. And we do these both indoors and outdoors. So I'm just going to show you a couple of photos of some of the ones we've done and then I want us to talk together about what this means, this all means for our own families and for our own communities, right? So this is, these are actually from the first Cape we did at Yonkers River Fest in 2009 and as you can see we have some materials that you might not always have your kids with we have some nails and hammers and so on we have many many trained play facilitators to make sure everyone's safe um, this is actually at Phillips Manor Hall and September 10th at um, 12 o'clock is Yonkers River Fest down um, by the Yonkers train station and we'll be doing another one. I invite you all to come. We do a lot of public capes, but we're gonna do a lot at Phillips Manor Hall and including this one at Riverfest. Um, so you can see th these kids that really mimic what you said. They focused, engaged. Um, the role of the play facilitator is to basically give them the nails and make sure they don't, you know, put one through their own nail, um, but otherwise to really uh, make sure that they just give them the opportunities to engage. Um, and here's an, the set of the first one we did in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you see there's an import on the right. That was when Ellie was Naomi's age. Um, this is one of the communities, um, that wonderful community organizations I work at called um, JBFC. And they have a girls' home, which you can see in the background. And they have girls, about 40 girls, who don't have other safe home environments. Um, and they bring them up with um, house mothers, caregivers, very like the model that I talked about earlier for younger children. So this we set up a cape. And I want to show you that because, interestingly, we see kids do a lot of the same things. You see that triangular play structure we saw in Yonkers, right? So kids tend to do a lot of interesting same things. Um, even though the materials are somewhat different. You can see we actually have dirt here um, and sand and that creates a whole sort of particular type of space. But what you really can see from all of this, this little girl, she's amazing. Well, she's not little anymore. She's 12 now. Um, but she is actually pretending to cook. She's making a seema, which is like a um, thick porridge and you with cornmeal and you have to mix it really hard to make it smooth. And so she's pretending to do that with stones. Um, 
and then later she um, let me see if I have that one these kids are just playing some sort of game with um, with balancing game and hopefully we'll go back and see some of these things your kids have been doing as well she actually made a bed and a doll and now she's putting the doll to bed ah Let's see if we could get that. I don't know why it keeps losing itself. We're going, we're going through it at a pretty rapid rate. Um, and so while, it, while it's coming up, the goal for some of these is to create a space where children are free to engage in materials on their own. And this is the sort of thing that you maybe do at home already or have done or could very easily do because we asked you to bring in the materials we're using today, right? They're just natural um, recyclable and natural materials. I've actually done some just with natural materials. Those are really fun too. Um, all right, come on. Okay, I think it's coming back to us. It's because I didn't say what slide we're on, right? That it's, that it's not liking this. Okay, this is gonna be slide 30. Um, all right. And that they actually, they had all these stones around their home and they never had played with them. But when they saw that they could play with other things, they started playing with these stones and creating games and so on and also painting. Okay, so how, what do we do? How do we interrupt chaos and create space for play, for um, family routines and rituals that can create positive environments for our children's learning and also provide space for us to talk about God's word, meditate on his word and on his creation. So for me, the most important thing we can do is give our kids some downtime. And what I mean by that is not do, not tell them to do anything at all. Give them time in a space at home or outside where they can explore, experiment, daydream. This is for children of all ages. They'll have different sorts of things they want. We are wired to learn through play, even as adults. We're wired to learn through exploration. Um, and if you can provide ways, for me particularly, the ways in which I came to really understand God were through really the beauty of his creation and be as a young child and spending time on it and my mother would talk to me about the things that God had created and what the world looked like and and also taught me to care for the world that he had created that way right what this means by the way I do want to say is that I know that this may seem hard in some way how do you get your kids to just do something on their own especially with young kids it can be hard one of the biggest things we can do is actually make space, and I really mean physical space, where we don't have a lot of things in the space, but we then put a few simple loose parts, right? So put a big box of Lego in the middle of the room. And the other things, well, I'll talk more about how we can sort of think about this for our own children. The second most important thing, but maybe Rob would argue this is the first most important thing, and maybe I agree with him, but I'm a child psychologist, so, um, is to give yourself some down time, right? Having your own time for reflection is critical for well-being, moral development, attention, and so on, and of course is critical for our relationship with God. And if we don't have a healthy relationship with God, then it's very hard for us to help our children to have a healthy relationship. This is not easy at all, but I would encourage you all to prioritize this over other things, including sometimes, often, 
things for your children, right? Skip that extra step in your meal. I really mean it. I'm all about, I, I'm a bit of a pain with the sort of food that we have to have for our kids and all the rest of it. But sometimes we need to prioritize our own downtime. Um, and if you can, get out in some natural space as well. I think that really happens. Here's the piece. Wow. Going. <laughs> Luckily, I remember it, but it's easy if you guys can see it as well. Um, here's the piece where we can figure out what, how to create downtime and playtime for our children that works, and downtime and playtime where we are not having to engage actively with them. Take some time to observe and talk with your children. We all do this, we all know this, but concretely, if we are going to be able to figure out what works for our families, we need to pay attention to children's individual needs, both from in terms of their personality and in terms of their developmental status. And we have to think about this as we go through. Now, this doesn't have to take more time. This is something we can do as they do stuff. It just takes a conscious awareness that we should watch them play um, so that we can figure out how to support their play. And I promise you, if you take a little time to do this, it will give back to you over and over. If you figure out those things that engage your kid on their own so you don't have to be there, um, then you will have more time to cook dinner. Um, and it's, it's an easy thing to say, but it really is something that it really makes a very big difference. And especially when your kids are very young, um, but it actually, you will, feel, you will see the difference, but it actually is also important as they enter their teen years that you figure out ways that they can engage and be enthralled and active in things that, really, that, that they really enjoy. Um, and then ways in which you can enjoy time together. And what I mean by enjoy time together is unstructured time, right? Healthy parent-child relationships, as we said right at the beginning, are foundation for all other relationships, including your children's relationship with Christ, right? And we all know this. So it also impacts their cognitive development if you want to get them into Yale later, or did I say the wrong word? Um, maybe Harvard. Um, it also, <laughs> Cornell, I, well, I'm Cornell, so I couldn't say that. Um, so, it's also essential as your kids enter the teen years, but even before that, effective mentoring relationships also are protective child for all factor for all children. No matter what else is happening in their lives, if they have a couple of key healthy mentoring relationships, and that could certainly be with you, but can also develop with teachers and friends and colleagues, and other folks at church, that is what's going to really stick with them in the long term. All right get outside and play right and it doesn't have to be anything that you make a big plan for if you have a garden and you that you can explore explore it consider making your garden or any spa play spaces you have safe for kids to play in, in their own so that you don't have to be directing their play right consider what you might need to do to make it a place for them 
There are many wonderful places, many of you know of them. There's the Greenberg Nature Center, there are many zoos and aquariums and natural history museum. There are actually some wonderful places in Yonkers that you might not know about. There's a completely off the grid science barge that has a whole organic farm that's aquaponic, it has fish that then, you know, hydroponic and aquaponic. It's an awesome place. Um, and the people there are fabulous. Um, we actually, Sarah Lawrence now has this partnership with the, um, it's now called the Sarah Lawrence College Center for the Urban River at Bizac, but it's Bizac. Um, and they have an outdoor, they have just a park. And you can actually get take your kids into the Hudson River, and they have lots of programs. They have Saturday programs all the time, um, where your kids can actually get out in the river and get to know that you know, the Hudson River is actually a lovely place and has lots of fish and all sorts of other things. Um, there's a Hudson River Museum, and there are many, many other things. Um, do your own community adventure play experiences. You've seen them. You're going to see them. That's very easy. Um, you all knew this was coming. Kill your television, but mostly I would say your iPad at this point, especially for your children, um, your iPhone, Facebook, Pinterest, and so on. And I say this not because these things can't be great. There are many great things about having mobile technology and being able to connect with folks. I connect with folks from high school. They didn't have email addresses. I didn't know what they were doing. And they've become, you know, they were good friends. We just didn't have a way of being contacted. There are many good things about these, about these technologies. But the biggest challenge is when they interrupt and distract from regular routines and rituals for ourselves and for our children and for our families, right? And that's when they become a problem. Most importantly, you must, we must practice being still. That's when we hear from God, right? But that's also how we set, reset our internal environment. Sleep, by the way, is meant to be still. We're not meant to be checking our phone when we wake up in the middle of the night and you know, whatever. Practice being still and do all you can to teach your children to be too. And I don't mean still like we expect Simon to not run around all over the place. He's two. That's what he should be doing, right? But my, Naomi never is still. But teach them to have space where they're not constantly thinking of the next thing they're going to do. Now, play, creating a great place for play just by letting your kids run around outside is a great place for them to be still. You've seen how focused your kids get when they really get into a play experience. But I think that there are also ways of doing family worship that can help teach them to be still, even if it takes some time. Um, here's another fun idea. Go outside and read some psalms in the garden um, and meditate on the psalms. Um, and here's a piece that I actually I just got from my sister, although I do something like this in some of my programs. They call them magic spots for um, this is environmental education. But what the idea is that you have one place, ideally outside, that you go on a regular basis, ideally every week, and you give yourself 20 minutes and you just meditate in that spot and reflect on the world around you, the natural environment, and allow time to be still and to and um, to learn from from what's around you. And um, this you can do with kids of all ages. Um, this is an integral part of a lot of environmental education programs because it connects kids with the natural world and their place in it. Okay. So, 
This is back from Wendell Berry, right? I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. So here are some resources that I think, the, Rob gave a much bigger list of resources and I encourage you to get a hold of this. This is slide 34. Um, something that I have found, I have it back here somewhere actually. Could you grab my yellow bag? Okay. This may not be for everyone. You may, and I would like us to share ideas actually. But something that we've been using um, is this, just this common prayer. Um, it's Shane Claiborne. Um, bit of a radical but but this isn't this is just a common prayer book um, it is it has a social justice band um, this has very short two-page meditations that you do in community and you can do it in any community we do it in our family and we try really hard don't always um, to do it in the morning and at night with our kids at night it involves lighting candles they really like that Naomi usually sings happy birthday to Jesus <laughs> <laughs> but you know it has a short meditation and you can read scripture with it and so on you can put in a Bible story but it's just a way to it's, it's worked for us because it's been something that's a very simple short routine that we can do regularly to begin and end our day as a family but any other things that you can do I really encourage you to think about a way to begin your day and end your day with Christ both individually and as a family um, and then there are a couple more um, news these are all links on the PowerPoint that will go up um, online um, there's a really great article that I just read of habits of mind in an age of distraction that really talks about the impacts that being distracted and interrupted has um, this don't waste your mornings that's um, John Piper's piece which I think was actually really very short and succinct but really insightful I really enjoyed it um, we have a film when learning comes naturally that's out from the Child Development Institute that features some of the centers I talked about but shows children playing and learning in the natural world it's a beautiful film half an hour um, I can lend it to you or you can buy it on Amazon for $130 for some reason I don't know why that's the <laughs> filmmaker who made it with you know whatever but I have it. Um, and then if you're really interested in the importance of play for children um, here's Einstein never used flashcards this is Roberto Golenkoff um, and Kathy Hirsch-Pesek who are um, colleagues who really focus on play and learning for young children but it's a really nice parent book I recommend it it's very easy read it's translating some of the research in very easy ways and it has lots of ideas for things that you can do for kids of different ages no flashcards involved I'm sorry um, and then this piece is a, a this is a collection of essays by um, Wendell Berry it's not as racy as it sounds um, but it's it's really good it's a selection of meditations on um, our place in the environment and in God's creation so I want to leave it there from me, but I would love us all to share some ideas for ways in which we have found work for setting family routines and rituals um, that we think would be helpful to share with everyone else. Any ideas, comments? A dance performance? I always give that opportunity in case anyone wants Things that have worked in your home? Things that haven't worked that we can avoid. I think one thing that we're trying to struggle with is the boys come home, so we, we put them in after school activities. So we come home and is it like 
do we give them free time before getting into homework? Or is it getting all the work done and then free time afterwards? Because neither of them seems to really sustain itself very well. So I was wondering if anyone else is that. Anyone have ideas? I don't have kids who have homework yet. <laughs> Things you've done? Our family, I think. Whatever you have to do that day has to get done right after bus. And also, they have the ride in the bus, so which I think is like a downtime for them. They can chat with whatever they need to do. Jonathan has a phone. So I figured that 20 minutes or whatever bus time is their downtime. So what they're trying to do with is negotiable. I mean, the, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, and I'm not saying what you guys, not, I won't say this to you, but I do, I do want to say, I mean, I agree with, I, I will agree that there are things we have to do, and that's a, the real challenge. I mean, this is what I was talking about at the beginning with this big model, that we may have our own values and beliefs, but they're embedded within a whole cultural context, and that includes school and the expectations of our current school system, which we may or may not agree with. There's very good research that shows that homework does not help children learn, that the less homework kids do, the better they do. And that's why I say it can be negotiable, because actually, that is something that I encourage you, if you feel like they have too much homework and they're not being able to really rest and spend time and play, that's not good for children. And teachers know that too, but teachers are in a bind because they have these common core requirements and other things. I encourage you to talk with your teachers about these challenges. If they have enough parents saying this is a challenge for us, they have more power. And we've seen this happen in New York State. We had this pushback against Common Core. That was parents saying that is too much, right? But we do live in a world that has certain expectations. And if they're going to learn for school, to go to college, you know, we're setting them up for certain things. Yeah, but you're thinking more of a content. Yes. But for me, homework for 10 minutes, like you said, it's really not going to make exactly. them exactly. into Einstein's or Edith Harper yeah. or Yale. It's really about routine. <coughs> exactly. Habit, mm -hmm. Just like the thing that's having responsibility and get, yeah. getting things that they not necessarily want to do, to do, but they must but that do. They have to do. That's mm -hmm. more for me, it's not more of how well they do or how mm -hmm. good they do or how well they perform, but it's more like your job is to be a student, then you get it done. Because I mm -hmm. think that also is the way I was raised. Yeah. Like, you have to do homework. And it wasn't about study, study, study. And their homework is like 10 minutes. Yeah. It's not even hard or challenging. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. 
this, but for them, you know, well, this is what I, I mean, I do, I, I completely agree with you on this. What I would suggest is that your kids may be, everyone's kids might be different on this, and to gauge them as much as you can, figure out how much time they need for their homework and when they need to do it, and set up a routine for them. Um, and that involves, I work with a lot of after school programs and that, you know, they have different functions and different things work for different kids. Some kids, if they have playtime right at the beginning, then it's all over. You cannot get them to sit back down again. For other kids, they just need that 10 minutes to run around and then they can sit down and engage. I would encourage you that kids can't focus for very well. Actually, adults can't focus for very well more than 40 minutes. And kids, it's, it's minutes associated with age, right? So let's just say about half an hour is enough time. If they've sat for more than half an hour because they're struggling with something, they're not going to be more successful until they get a break. And so setting, figuring out what they need to do in the ground rules with them and then giving them the different, and I like this toy by as a student, right? This is your job as a student. You have goals, responsibilities, but then figuring out with them how, when they're going to have their downtime, because the worst thing is if they don't get time to play, right? If they don't get time to play, they are not going to enjoy school. They're not going to be pleased with you and they're not going to be successful, right? And so however you can fit in that playtime, but I always encourage negotiating with your children, saying what do you think will work with you? Let's try different things and what do we think will work? Not because you're not the parent and you have to be responsible, but if they buy into it and say, yes, I've decided to do my homework first so I can play, they're more likely to want to do it, right, than the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, it's it's hard because they want to do things, and most of the time, kids will say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do that." Well, you have reasons why you want them to do it, but. Again, it's not so much what you're doing, but what you're not doing, right? So if they don't have time to play every day, up to, I would say, adults too, but I'm as guilty as everyone else of that. But up till at least age 12, if they're not playing every day, that is, then something has to change because something is not working for them, right? No. And yeah, tennis is not, I mean, I grew up playing tennis, my parents also got me in tennis very early and I loved it and whatever, but it doesn't feel the same as unstructured play, right, to them, as you're saying, so. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll appreciate it later when they can play. <laughs> yeah. I just have a comment, um, I think just like growing up, like, you know how in the Bible, like, for six days, God worked and he was like, mm-hmm. rested, but I feel like almost like if our days kind of look like that, like, Mm-hmm. Because I think if we're going to be like imitators of the world and like the way that he works and like the way that if we're creating God's 
image and that's how we work too. So I think it's like super important that like whatever your child finds in school, like for them to like engage in that. So if that means like playing with cards or if that means like, I don't know, like kicking a soccer ball or something like that or doing homework first, like whatever is restful, I think like you need to rest and then they can go again because at least for myself, I found that like when I, I kept trying to go, 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 go without trying to rest and I ran into a lot of problems. Part of, part, of, part of the struggles we have is when we say kids need to rest, they go, oh, did that iPad time? <laughs> so, now I'm so, so, that's, so that's where I'm trying to negotiate that out. Mm -hmm. so thoughts on that? I, I mean, I'll say mine that, I, you know, I think that I don't have a problem with kids yeah. watching TV occasionally, especially after they've had a really busy day or they're very, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. We use it as a time to just rest, right? right? Um, if they love, but, but often they're doing that because it's the easy thing that's available. Mm -hmm. And if we figure out something else that they really like doing, they'll often be more engaged in that. So it's figuring out talking with them about, well, what else would you do? And mm -hmm. are there ways to create that? Mm -hmm. um, my kids really love painting, but that's actually very tiring for me to set up. But I've figured out ways to set it up so that it's not so hard, right? <laughs> Um, but there are different things for different kids. And I think oftentimes, although the iPad's very engaging for us and for them, it's because it's the easy answer. It's all there for us. And if we had had something else, they would, usually, they would often choose that. But I'm not, again, for me, it's about what it's taking away from rather mm -hmm. than the problem of it. I think they mm -hmm. want to watch I, a well, show. Well, I find that the thing is more enticing. Mm -hmm. in, uh, one of the things I do is, is I, do, I take them out a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, because for us, we live in you know yeah, we live in Hamburg. We, yeah. we live in somewhat like feel like we're limited in space in our place. For me, my motivation is to bring them out and just kind of mm -hmm. be in the open. But what I'm finding is, um, like, yeah, let's go biking. You know, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, but but we didn't get iPad time today. <laughs> 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 what? <laughs> yeah, the whole. I just feel like it's it's mm -hmm. the. the um, it's becoming more enticing for them versus it is about the easy way out. I it's know. A, there's, a, there's an enticement to that. There is. That I'm, which I, I mean, we're, we're like borderline calling it addiction, but we, uh, but I don't think they're addicted, but there is an enticement that says, mm -hmm. this gives me more thrill than going out with my father and going biking or going nature hiking mm -hmm. and all those things. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's like, it's like, you know, I have, to, I, I have to take them out kicking and screaming because <laughs> it's like, you know, we're not taking that with us today. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's yeah. it's it's a harder battle. I, I feel agree. like more it than is. when this article no. came out. No, I I do <coughs> to yeah. I t I totally agree with you on that. I think it is a hard battle. It's a hard battle for us. Mm. I mean, how many of you have I said don't take your phone into your bedroom would have would just say oh that's easy I'll do it tomorrow anyone right I mean it's a very hard thing or even to say don't take your phone to your family meal time which mm. I promise you that is my right and like that's I 
I don't often say big thing, but I just think you should not have your phone at mealtime because not because it cannot be useful, right? Not because it may not be interesting. As Dan says, it's contributing to the conversation. I'm going to Google something. It's true. <laughs> it does. It does, right? But it's easy then once you turn it on to get sucked into doing all sorts of other things, right? And so... I, I agree with you. I yeah. don't think they're easy answers. In fact, people are trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also, I mean, for example, kids can actually, if, if there's contingency, like on Skype, they can actually learn from that. If it's not contingent, if it's not responding to them, they're not learning from that, yeah. right? Um, you know, it's it's hard. I don't know if other people have particular recommendations of things they've done, especially mm -hmm. with older kids. I think that that's the... It's bit, well, I, I, I think with the old, as they get older, as like with Josiah now, as he's kind of turning into his tween years it is it is one of those things where he much prefer to be to be on that than, than doing things when he was little when like oh let's go biking has have you asked him why he wants to be on the ipad or try to talk know. through Mine, i have no it? idea why he likes minecraft he just kids <laughs> they, they love the game I, you know they're Yes, they do. They do. It's an exploration it and there's a lot of things. You know, there there are a lot of actually great um, books and little games for kids who really like, like young boys who like mm -hmm. those sort of things um, that they can get really into. But then they need to have someone to play with them. You see, the thing yeah. with the iPad is they can go and do all that explore or whatever on their right. own. But most of those other alternatives are things. But maybe you should set up a Minecraft outside so they have <laughs> like, Pokemon Go, there you go. That's the solution. <laughs> everything apparently yeah no I I mean it is it's hard but I encourage all of you if your kids are really feeling that to just have a as much as you can to have honest conversations yeah. with them and say why do you like this what are the alternatives what do you want again also I talk with my kids if they even I mean especially Ellie but even now I talk with them about why we're not going to watch the iPad right I'll mm -hmm. say you know I know you enjoy doing I know you want to usually they just want to watch a movie right because that's what they want to do and I'll say but we can't have a conversation while we're doing that and so we will do that sometimes, but also let's do this. And why does that matter? Whatever. But it doesn't, I don't think it solves your problem. <laughs> but, um, but hearing from them will help even if they don't play less, just that you've talked with them about it. Uh, yeah, I don't I, know. I think I just, I come to just set a rule. Like, yeah. You know, um, for instance, uh, nothing, you know, if you want to go on iPad, if it's 8 o'clock, I'm sorry, it's, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a set limit that 8 o'clock is a cutoff time. If if you didn't get time to do it because you had homework with other things and it's o'clock you didn't get time, oh, time that's, for iPad that's why I was like you know the iPad's not going to die yeah you know um, but it, it's just for me it's been setting like more strict rules and just yeah. having much more control over when they get on yeah um, yeah and I don't want to do it to a point where I know like, I, don't, I don't trust them because for instance they wake up early than us and they go downstairs I'm like <laughs> what are you doing Probably, he's probably on for a little bit yeah, yeah. but at the same time it's you know me short of putting a passcode on it which I think creates more of a mistrust because I don't want to yeah, do that either I agree uh, mm -hmm. I feel like we've been trying to set like time limits and when it gets cut off mm -hmm. and when there's a little more lax like on the weekends okay we're, we're, we'll give you another like hour mm -hmm. um, but outside of that that's how we've been working yeah. around it but the I guess going back to what we've been doing it's it's speaking to the heart that's been hard yeah yeah it's, huh. it's just there's there's kind of an enormous desire for it yeah and I, I guess I'm trying to understand how you communicate why that isn't so healthy anyway, yeah no I don't know if anyone has ideas <laughs> I, hope we, I mean obviously we want to try to communicate to our kids that 
we want to desire God before all other things, but it's not that easy to actually do it and talk about. I mean, I don't think that's that easy. I, I will say, for me, one thing is that I think oftentimes, and I don't think this is your case here. I, I think this is a real issue, but it is important when we see our children struggling with something, like really wanting to be involved, doing iPad or phone or whatever, to think about our own practices and what we're communicating to them. Like if we are on our phone first thing in the morning, not surprising they want to be. But that's not the issue here. It's more like they just really like playing Minecraft on the iPad. And it's, it's, it's like the, I can see there are lots of little boys who love to play that game and girls too. It's, it's, it's a problem solving game, right? I think it's Yeah. But it would be, I think that would be a broader conversation and maybe yeah. prayer for us as a church because it yeah. is a growing challenge, I think. I think it's growing. Even in the last few years, it's become more and more of a challenge. Um, Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you that there are any answers out there for any of this, um, but I think it's something that we could try to think about all together, right? It would be a good idea. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.